Combing the Stacks podcast, your go-to podcast for six decades of music, three albums at a time. Each decade, we cover over 200 albums spanning all musical genres and tastes, from the well-known acts to the cult favorites. Your tour guides on this journey are John, Josh, and Matt, three amateur music podcasters who all share a love of music and a shared quest to hear the next great album. And now, we head into the Stacks. Hello and welcome to the 1980s, everybody. It is season three of Combing the Stacks Music Podcast, episode one, our first episode. Uh, I'm going to do a check-in here with the fellas in a little bit. We're going to kind of tell you some new things we have planned for season three that we're very excited about, Uh, you know, but before I go into a little bit of that, let's do a check-in. Let's see how everybody's feeling as we embark on, we say a six decade journey. We are in decade three of the journey. For those that may not have listened before this or listened sporadically, well, halfway would be the end of season (laughs) of decade three, wouldn't it? So Josh needs to brush up on some math. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So we're we're heading toward halfway. Let's put it that way. After about a year's worth of albums this year in in the 80s. Uh, Josh, you've come in a couple times. How are you, bud? Just call me Duke Ellington because I'm jazzed for the 80s, baby. Oh, look at that. I like it. So, and Matt, are you equally as Jess? Should we call you uh, Eric Dolphy over there? Or <laughs> yeah, Charles Mingus? <laughs> yeah. Matt is both the Black Saint and the Sinner Lady. <laughs> Any, no jazz in the 80s for us, or very little. I don't believe so. The 80s no was wit, not a... No Witten Marsalis? 
Let's see in the is that 80s. how you say halcyon? Is that how you say that word that I love mm-hmm. so much? Halcyon. I don't know. I never the use 80s, it. I don't, I don't think of as a halcyon era for jazz. But what does halcyon mean? Maybe I would use it if I knew what it meant. I've always known that to mean like a like a golden or a, a bit, you know, like a, a, a glory era, you know, mm. halcyon days, like okay. the best state kind of stuff like that. So, you yeah, know, I don't know. If great success, prosperity. You got it. All that good stuff, which which this season is going to bring to all of us in abundance, mm-hmm. like a cornucopia of of uh, feels and takes and just excitement. And and I'm really excited for this year. And we have a we have a very interesting three albums now. We've got some new segments that we're going to introduce at the beginning of the show, which I think we're all very excited about. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's though, for those that uh, may be listening for the first time, or just to kind of review a little bit, uh, we have two different types of episodes on the Combing the Stacks Music Podcast. The first is what we call the full bio episodes, and that is where we cover three albums. Matt does one, I do one, Josh does one. We do a bio or at least a check-in if we've covered the artist several times, uh, and then it leads into our discussion of the album. Uh, Now, historically, what we have done on those albums is we have used the best ever albums top 100. Now, what we've done this year a little bit is we will still be covering the 100 albums that are in the best ever albums, top 100, the 80s. But instead of revisiting the bio for select artists, we actually decided that we were going to do 100 unique artists in bio form. So you will see some familiar artists that we covered in the 60s and 70s, but there will only be one appearance on a full bio episode per artist. So we are changing it up a little bit more so that there are some new bios, some greater depth for more artists along the way. Uh, We still will be doing the second version of the show. It's called a cold listen hot take. Those episodes, we do six albums. Uh, We do them without a bio. So we go right into the discussion. Uh, We will be continuing to cover multiple albums from the artists that may have been in the top 100 on best ever albums we just won't be doing a full bio so for example if we're going to do say four rem albums one will end up in the full episodes the full bio and then the other three would end up in cold list and hot takes now we will be going uh chronologically and so you will be start we will be starting with the 1980s which is where all the albums are from tonight um, and then the show schedule is going to be two full bio episodes followed by a cold listen hot take. So there will be some consistency. Uh, every third week will be the cold listen hot take. Um, so we're pretty excited about that. It gives us a little bit of structure. Mm-hmm. We also are going to be debuting up to three different uh, new segments to go along with our standbys to cleaning the stacks and the uh, Josh's uh, movie corner, which is mm-hmm. there, and uh, this day in history. But we will be adding some other ones, including tonight. We're hoping. That goes fantastically, but, uh, you know, sometimes a car crash is fun to watch, too, um, as long as you're not in it, I guess. And so we'll, we'll hope that we uh, ride smoothly. So, yeah, that's a lot of information on the front end. I apologize for I, and talking And I'm going to so add much. one more thing, John. So the bio yeah. episode that we're going to cover, if, uh, if we're covering an artist multiple times, the bio is going to be the album that's mm-hmm. the highest rated album uh, on Best Ever point. Albums. Correct. So that's how we decided to... We're gonna, if we're going to talk about a band, we should talk about their quote-unquote best, best, best album. So. Right. So, for example, if we were going to cover U2, while we will be covering, I believe, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. War. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> while no, we no, will be no. covering War in there. Uh, uno, dos, tres, catorce. Can I throw that <laughs> yeah, one in there yeah, as well? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and, yeah. Hello, hello. So we could just keep going all 2,000 uh, U2 memes. But, um, yeah, but say we were covering War, which we will be covering in a cold list and hot take. Uh, that is not the highest the Joshua Tree is, so we would do the bio for the Joshua Tree. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be kind of what Matt was saying, mm-hmm. just though to give an example. So there we go. Lots of stuff. 
We've done the check-in. Because we're interested in doing some of these new segments and we have, we have plenty of interesting albums this week, let's have Matt buffer the albums. And then you know what, Matt? That's a great time to go into uh, this day in music history as well after you've uh, billboarded the albums. All right, right on. So with the, uh, we're going to start covering the 1980s, kicking it off with David Bowie uh, with his 1980 album, Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. John will be covering that. And then I'm going to be uh, taking the helm with ACDC's Back in Black. And Josh is going to round out things with Bauhaus and their and their album in the flat field. Um, I am excited to hear that bio. I, I just want to say that up front. Um, oh. So Josh, yeah, Good. looking forward to that. <laughs> uh, all right. So and then we're going to do this day in music history. Such is a history of where someone has been killed. Okay, guys. So I got there's a there's a lot of stuff that happened on April 13th um, this day in music history. So I'm gonna kind of but I'm gonna kind of bundle them together. So we have a couple of releases. 51 years ago today, 1971, the Rolling Stones released Brown Sugar, which was taken from their other album Sticky Fingers, which we covered last in the last decade. Mm-hmm. Um, other releases that happened this day in 1973, 49 years ago, both uh, Bob Marley's Catch a Fire. And David Bowie's Aladdin Sane, um, were mm. covered, we, which we covered in the 1970s as well. They, mm-hmm. Those turned 49 today. Hey, and, uh, Matt. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know you know what I always wonder about brown sugar? What, what's that, John? It tastes so good. Why do you taste so good? <laughs> <laughs> mm. that, that song has, uh, is, is totally PC. And, uh, <laughs> processed. Not- I said unprocessed. There you go. There's a question. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, 48 years ago, Elton John hit number one on the U.S. singles charts with Benny and the Jets, which was the mm. uh, single from Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, another album that was covered on Best Ever Albums, as was mm-hmm. Paul McCartney's Band on the Run, which went number one on the U.S. album charts this day in 1974, 48 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so lots of uh, releases and number ones and all that stuff. Um, but here we get into some of the good stuff. Um, 40 years ago, 1982, David Crosby making an appearance again. He's back. He was arrested when police found him preparing cocaine backstage in his dressing room before a show in Dallas. Um, I love that term. Does that just mean like putting it on a mirror? I preparing, cutting it up. I don't know. It's just okay. Just I thought the idea of preparing, like he's preparing a meal. He's preparing a line of coke. You know. Uh, maybe he's praying over it for example you know just to yeah give it while he's getting a a, spiritual yeah yeah yeah, exactly Mm -hmm. under the table you know david crosby did not appear too much in the 70s i kind of missed him there so um no i think we're done with him musically but we're gonna get probably more stories of his you know this day in history and all that stuff too busy Mm. preparing cocaine yeah i guess so. that's (laughs) right that's right harvesting it guys 13 years ago in 2009 68-year-old U.S. music producer Phil Spector was convicted of murdering mm. actress Lana, Lana Clarkson um, after a five-month trial. So um, I don't remember how much – when did – he died not longer – much longer after not that long, must be, right? Yeah. No, no. He died like a couple years ago. A Recently, couple years ago he yeah. died. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so he was probably in jail for like 10 years. So, so mm-hmm. yeah, so there you go. Um, I thought this was an interesting one. 2009, I don't know where they got this from. 13 years ago, Procol Harum's A Whiter Shade of Pale was was uh, the most played song in public place, voted, I guess, or, or named the most public publicly played song over the past 75 years, according to a chart compiled for BBC Radio 2. What? 
What constitutes um, publicly played? Is that's that like what in I was a department wondering. Like store any, or like yeah, on the, yeah, radio? Or the radio or something like well, that? What about yeah, wonderful Christmas time. That has to be more. <laughs> God, <laughs> no. But we didn't cover Prokoharum, but we did cover nope. Queen, who came in at number two with Bohemian Rhapsody, um, followed by All I Have oh, to Do wow. Is Dream by the Everly Brothers. Oh, um, wow. That's and some, inter- I would not have guessed any of those three. I think yeah. is like what are the three most well, you, played you cert- songs. You certainly wouldn't have guessed number four either. Some band called Wet, Wet, Wet with their 1994 hit, hit Love Is All Around. That was number four. And then Brian Adams' 1991 hit Everything I Do, I Do It For You, which is not surprising. That, that and I think all freaking... of those plays were from like 1993 to like 1995 on adult contemporary radio. Yes. Yeah, that, was, so. that was like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves soundtrack. That's I right. remember it was like number was one on... I remember I used to listen to the the Billboard top, like the thing that Casey Kasem would do, mm-hmm. like because I, I, I always I was traveling to like a soccer game at that time. It was on during the time, and I can remember for weeks and weeks they'd say it's still holding at number one. It's Brian <laughs> Adams with, and I'm like this fucking song again. You know what I mean? And it wasn't even like like other songs that were up there forever, like End of the Road or something. Where you're like, all right, you know, I you know. I kind of like this. I get it. Yeah, that one. You're just like, this can't be the most played song again. But it was for like 13 weeks. Yeah, it was nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple of theft stories here. Uh, a portrait of Pink Floyd founder Sid Barrett was returned to the London Art Gallery after being stolen the previous week. So this was 11 years ago um, in 2011. Um, and 10 years ago in 2012, five of Tom Petty's guitars were stolen from a soundstage in Culver City, Ca- uh, California, where he and the Heartbreakers were rehearsing for their upcoming worldwide tour. Um, so, yeah, I guess the, they didn't say that the guitars were returned, although Petty was offering a, a reward bounty of $7,500 uh, to anyone, no questions asked, if anybody had information. But um, but they did get uh, Wasn't a bounty? A bounty, though, like sounds like there'd be questions asked, wouldn't reward it? Reward like, bounty. their head. Okay, yeah. Yeah, he's just, yeah. Well, he just wanted his, his I don't know if he got him back, though. I wish they would have told me. Um uh and finally guys i have to say this i i guess this is a thing happy aerosmith day that today is a, a, a aerosmith day 29 years ago the commonwealth of massachusetts uh named okay. april 13th for some reason aerosmith day wow um so they have their own holiday uh, i live in massachusetts I didn't see any. Uh, Did you, how'd you Steven celebrate? Tyler or, <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't know until just like twenty minutes ago when I did the research for this. So, you, um, right, favorite Aerosmith song since we're here since it's Aerosmith Day. Matt, you start. Uh, I, I I like. Oh, you know what? I I what what it takes is a great is a great Aerosmith ballad. I've always liked that oh, song. Wow. Okay, Josh, favorite Aerosmith song. Uh, don't want to close my eyes from the Armageddon soundtrack. Oh God! <laughs> wow, that, that, is that really your choice? No, it's the first thing okay. I thought. Of. Okay, I, I my, don't want to miss a thing, Josh. That's sweet emotion, probably. That's mine, a, that was that was my second one. Yeah, that's a good one. Mine is Mama Kin, and oh. then uh, I think Guilty Pleasure would be Ragdoll. <laughs> is that from the album that we covered? No, I think Ragdoll's like Permanent Vacation. Yeah, okay. so yeah. No, yeah, and that's not and for have, rocks. Ragdolls later, like it, like eighties MTV. That's why I wanted to make sure I made a, a shout out to eighties Aerosmith since we're mm-hmm. in the eighties right now. So, and we have several people celebrating a birthday today, turning seventy-eight years old. Jack Cassidy, who was the bass guitarist of Jefferson Airplane, we haven't mm-hmm. talked about them in a while, but he turned seventy-eight no. today. Although they come back in the eighties as Starship. As Starship. I don't know if Jack Cassidy's a part. I don't of that. know I if he's just I was gonna say, I don't know if he's and a bunch of other people. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
turning 76 years today and from born in 1946 the reverend al green mm. uh, who we covered a couple of times in the 70s um turning 71 today is max weinberg drummer from uh the e street band mm-hmm. uh, with bruce and springsteen conan. and also conan o'brien yep. that's right and uh 19 uh, born in 1954 turning 68 today jimmy destry who remembers who he is because i didn't oh, I, I don't, don't remember Oh, John, you disappoint me. This is uh, the keyboardist from Blondie, Jimmy Destry, 68 oh, wow. years old today. Okay. Yep. And wow. there you go. That's this day in music history. Lots of stuff on April 13th. That was a robust amount of uh, history there, Matt. Mm-hmm. And even some history that's somewhat recent instead of just like 50 years ago. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's okay. Aerosmith Day. Let's do it. There you go. And by the way, worst Aerosmith song, only answer is pink. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I... Yeah. I, I I don't. I'm sure I there's a song I don't even song. know that. that well, yes, that, in terms of mainstream, though, I think yeah. that's that's pretty close to the top. Pink. That's a of pretty fucking awful song. Yeah. yeah. Janie's got a gun. That's a good one. Pink is my favorite color. <laughs> is that really how it goes? Something that like was that. the yeah. least Steven Tyler. No, it's like <laughs> pink is my favorite color. You know, it's like it's like that really. <laughs> that cheesy, wasn't much like, better. Yeah. No, but you know, I tried to do like the the like. Steven Tyler, later Steven Tyler, where he, he really enunciates like all of the words, like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm yeah. kind of, I'll be honest. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of partial to the, uh, the trio of, uh, of songs from the, the get a grip album, the crying and, and, uh, well, I'm partial to Alicia Silverstone and Liv Tyler. Like, yeah. In that, yeah. I'm partial to them, but the songs. Mm. Oh yeah. The songs. Yeah. No, they got, they got some good melodies in there. That's Amazing not terrible. was very generic. Amazing. And, uh, Crying, crying, right? crying, amazing, yeah. and uh, crazy, crazy. That's it. There you go. Fall, you baby. That's, that's what I'm saying. It's like the 890s is all like him enunciating, like mm-hmm. you know, strong. Yeah. Anyway, all right. Who's Josh? all right? So who's next? Well, Josh's. Well, segment. whoever's cleaning. Yes, we have cleaning the stacks next. Our our classic segment. Does anyone have any cleaning? Besides me this week. I have no cleaning. I don't think so. I don't remember what we talked about last time. So, <laughs> okay. I just sweep it under short, the rug, never to be memory. talked about again. His, yeah, his also going. Um, the, the one thing I wanted to bring up, because I, I did send you guys this link, and I read the article today. Uh, TheRinger.com uh, released an article about television's marquee moon, which we all highly rated. And mm-hmm. uh, it's 45 years after its release. And it's a really nice article by Elizabeth Nelson, kind of giving the history of the album and, and of Tom Verlaine and Richard Hell. And uh, very well written, in my opinion, and really uh, adds some depth to what we talked about. So listen to our review and then read this article or vice versa. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was good. That's all I have. Well, Fresh. thank you, Josh. I'll, yeah. For doing that. Now, I am very excited, Josh, because <laughs> we are going to be debuting some 80s-centric new segments that are here. And so I'm not even going to spoil it. I'm going to let Josh attempt to explain this. And God help Matt and I, we're going to see what we can do on this one. Well, it's called Matt and John Sing the Hits. Insert placeholder music here. Matt and John sing the hits. Well, I feel like it should be like that. <laughs> yeah! You know, like the, the CSI thing or something like that. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. 
So mm-hmm. what we're going to do is I'm going to... Or, or I, like sing, <laughs> sing, yeah. you know, from Travis. That would be a good one too. Yeah, continue. I decided to uh, pick... Looked, I looked at the release dates the week of the three albums that we talk about this week, and I picked one and looked at the Billboard Hot 100 for that week, and that is what is going to be based on the list. And then I will give you the artist and the title, and you guys will try and sing the song. So, I so how many songs are there in total? We are so going to Matt, do five and see how it goes. Five in total. Okay, so <laughs> what do we five. say, Matt? What, what is success for us? Three out of five? Uh, yeah, I would go with that. Yeah, more okay. more than not. So okay, I believe you will get three out of five at least. You believe we will get three out? Okay, Josh so is giving us some softballs will on we, episode one. Will we alternate? Like Matt gets the first one, and then I get the second. And if I we can't get it, then the other one tries it. Is that how it works, or do we just do it at the same time? <laughs> yeah, it's like Family Feud style. You just ring the buzzer and start singing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll let Matt have the first one by himself, yeah. and then what'll happen is if we both know, we could both sing it. But sure. like, yeah. So Matt gets to do the first one. I'll do the second and we'll go from there okay so this is the hot 100 from the week of july 26th 1980 random week okay yeah Yeah. well this is the week that acdc's back in black was released okay so that's that's the back in black i hit the stack (laughs) (laughs) matt warming up the pipe straight there (laughs) so number one is Billy Joel's It's Still Rock and Roll to Me. Everybody's talking about the new sound, honey, but it's still rock and roll to me. Well done, Matt. Do the finger snaps in the... Isn't there like a bridge? It's like... Everybody's got to in the new town, honey. Next job like everybody's in the car. it's all crap, it's still rock and roll to me. There you go. He got it. Perfect. Off his album Glass Houses, his more rock-oriented album that came out in That was the one that, like, <laughs> punk music. I remember the thing was, yep. that was, like, punk music was, like, edgy, and he's like, I can rock like they can. I'm going to make Glass Houses. And so that's, that's like, not a very rock and roll song. I got also, also had the hits You May Be Right. Uh, don't ask you may me why. be right. I may be crazy. <laughs> yep. But it just might be a lunatic you're looking Does for. Does that count? Yeah. Well, that's not on the billboard, but I oh, John, turn out the, the lights. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Number two is Magic by Olivia Newton John. Oh. <laughs> Do you guys know this song? Off of the I... soundtrack Xanadu. <laughs> I don't this. know if I know how to sing Magic by Olivia Newton John. Yeah, it's uh. Uh oh, it's magic. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the car. When yeah. I'm with you. Well, check that out. Xanadu is a, an album. A crazy movie about a fantasy sequence where a muse inspires an artist and a friend to convert an auditorium into a lavish roller skating club. So, what? Featuring <laughs> Olivia Newton John and ELO in the music. For wow. And Gene really? Kelly's last performance as, a, as an actor. That's really? just Thanks. a whole lot of stuff all that's at a once. Lot of, oh, yeah. yeah that's that a lot movie's of a whole lot of movie, let me tell you. Um, so Did you was, watch it? No, <laughs> but okay. I know it by reputation. It's kind of a cult classic in a way, uh, camp classic. By the way, I just listened to Magic as we were talking, and I still do not know Magic. <laughs> yeah, I, I so. didn't recognize it either. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Number three is Elton John's Little Genie. Oh, uh, Matt, you want to take a shot at Elton John Little Genie? I don't Genie? think I know this one. Little Genie? Yeah. Off the album 21 at 33 is 21st no. album John, at 33 years old. John, do you know this? Uh, I do not know Little Genie, to yeah. be honest. It was, uh, I listened to it. It was not 
that great. It was the hit, <laughs> one of the hit singles off that album, though. And I guess. Did you recognize it, Josh? Josh? No, I did not. Isn't that the album with like the "Don't Go Breaking My Heart" on it? Isn't that on the twenty-one or whatever? Is that no, that era? Or am I no, wrong? No, I didn't. That's uh, that's before this al- before, album, okay. I think. Okay. And uh, I didn't recognize. Oh, any it's a ballad off of this mm. one. So yep, it's an '80s Elton John ballad. Yeah. And, okay. uh, well, I get started on this one. All right. So that's number four. It. So, all right. So we're already one of three. Yeah, that's not we good. Got <laughs> number four is the, uh, the spinners Cupid slash I've loved you for a long time. I know you guys know Cupid, I think. Also uh, Sam Cook, Sam Cook original. I was about to say, I know the Sam yes. Cook Cupid, but I, yep. I honestly, I don't is think I can same, sing that. I think it's God, I thought song. I was going to do really well it's, on this segment. No, John, it's the same song. It's sing the it. Same you know song. it. <laughs> I, I I'm like blanking. Draw Cupid, back draw <laughs> back your bow. Oh, okay, yeah. Your yes. Flow, yep. Straight to my lover's heart. Wow. Follow me. So the spinners right. came back in the scene because they released disco uh, renditions of songs, and, and this was way up on the charts along with another mashup. I was thinking that it was going to be like medley. more one-hit wonders, and it's like instead it's like these established acts with like deeper. Like well, cuts. we'll we'll see as the segment you know progress, progresses okay. through our through the deck. That's why we gotta get to the whole top ten. We gotta get to the whole top ten. I'm counting that, Doug. We're two for you two. should. We're yeah, two for four. Definitely. Okay. And then number five is Shining Star by the Manhattans. So not Earth, Wind, and Fire, Shining Star. Correct. Not them. Okay. It goes. So it's not like you're a Shining Star. No matter who. That's Earth, Wind, nope. and Fire, right? Yeah. You honey, must be my Shining Star. <laughs> I'll sing it. it goes, honey, you. Are my shining star. <laughs> That's all I know. Wow. Okay. No, so, I yep. don't. Damn, Josh, wow. you're stumping us here. Yeah, and then, man. That was. And... Yep. So we're not going to go past that in terms of singing, but I'll round out the top 10. We've got. Well, Paul you're McCart- not going to, but if I know it, I'm going <laughs> to sing it. So, yeah. I don't think you know any of these. Uh, Paul okay. McCartney and Wings coming up live at Glasgow, which is off his Paul McCartney 2 album. I do not know that one. Steal no. Away by Robbie Dupree, a Yacht Rock song, if I ever heard one. Mm. That's kind. It was kind of familiar. Here's where my wrestling fact comes in, John. Okay. Yep. Uh, in 87, Robbie Dupree contributed the song Girls in Cars. Oh, to, to Strike Force. <laughs> yes. It was Strike Force's <laughs> in instrumental instru- entrance music from 87 to 89. It's like an old school, like 50s rock song is Girls in it Cars. It is not yes. good. <laughs> no, it isn't. It is not good. But I like the good. instrumental. Uh, mm-hmm. And Strike Force was Tito Santana and Rick Martel for all you it was. out there. And then we've got Tired of Toeing the Line by Rocky Burnett, a song which I do not recognize. <laughs> no. This is the top Boy, not, the, the, top the 1980s charts were brutal. Yep. Wow. Top 10 for this week. And then Take Your Time, Do It Right by the SOS Band. It's kind of a generic disco song um, that I did mm. not recognize. And The Rose by Bette Midler, um, which she was... Is that like, there is a rose? Yes. That, it's yep. that, yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yep. Not kiss from a rose. No, I I know that. I know that song. Yeah. (laughs) So that's it. Uh, You got you got a two out of five this week. So two out of five. I feel like as the eighties goes on, we're gonna do better though, because most of like the one hit wonders that I think Matt and I know, like around eighty one ish, is when stuff like that starts coming. So and and yeah, the whole point of the segment was you know to showcase music that we won't be covering. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Clear that some of these people were just kind of one hit wonders. Yeah, we'll do better in future. I, I'm I'm going to take it as a challenge to get better, guys. So 
not get cheap. I'll, but. Yeah, I'll pick. Maybe I'll pick a better uh, week next week. Next time we do it. No, just that's do rent. Okay. Just pick it how you pick it. We'll, we'll, we'll okay. just we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I was about to say no problem. So, Josh, you want to tell the the folks what next week's segment's going to be? Next week's segment is uh, Josh's movie corner. Mm-hmm. And I haven't decided what movie I'm going to pick yet. But <laughs> Xanadu. <laughs> but it will be relevant and entertaining. I like it. Relevant and entertaining. <laughs> With the, the CTS motto, relevance and entertainment. That's, That's what I go tombstone. for. And, relevant and entertaining. And professional. <laughs> yes. yes, and prof- yeah, a, a semi-professional podcast. So. <laughs> yes. All right, let's get into the um, the the meat of our mm-hmm. of our episode, and we're going to start with John, and he's going to be covering David Bowie's Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. I love how you just trampled over my transition. I was trying to do right there, John. I was trying oh, to make sorry. a cool one right there, and you just plowed right ahead. We can. It's almost. It I'll just now. There, I, 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 that's all right. That's <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. Well, too late now. All right. Well, let's. I do want to talk about these albums. Though. So, Scary Monsters parentheses. And Super Creep. It's kind of like that Brian Adams album we talked about before, or a mm-hmm. song. Everything I do, parentheses, I do it for you. This is Scary Monsters, parentheses, and Super Creeps. In the montage, you heard Ashes to Ashes, and you will now hear Fashion. I was about to say, so hopefully you've turned to the right and turned to the left. Um, So this is from 1980. This is David Bowie in his third decade in the CTS run, guys. We did do a David Bowie album in the 1960s. David Bowie, sometimes also called Space Oddity. So that is in the archives. Let's do a little test, guys. How many... Of the seventies albums that we covered, oh, I, can you remember? I can see right, because I'm, I'm looking at the. We have to do the numbers uh, too, but I'm looking at the numbers right now, so I already okay. I see that. So Josh, you go. All right. Heroes. Correct. Whoa. Correct. Station you're, to station. Wow, you're going backwards. Okay, so from the <laughs> later part to the front. Aladdin okay. Sane. Yes, Ziggy but there's Stardust. One. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Young Amer- Diamond Dogs. I can't nope. remember. Nope, there's one other. Monkey Dory. Mm hmm. Oh, there's one more after that? Did you forget Ziggy? No, no he did that. Ziggy. It okay. was just Hunky Dory, he forgot. Yep. So there we go. That's all the albums we covered. No, we did not cover Diamond Dogs. We did not cover The Man Who Sold the World. Uh, we did not cover Young Americans. Or Lodger. Um, and, uh, well, I'm going to get to Lodger in a second. There's also that cover album that I'm trying to remember the name of. Um, Pinups. We also did not cover. There you go. Pinups, exactly. So or Lodger. We didn't cover the uh, David Bowie recites Peter and the Wolf. Also. Right. Well, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not really counting that one. So I listened uh, to part of that. So. The the important one here is that we didn't cover Lodger because where we're at, where we're seeing Bowie right here, and I'm going to do a little bit of a quick sketch on Bowie in this one because there's a lot of bio in previous CTS episodes uh, for those that are interested. Um, probably the one that will do a nice job of setting the tone for you is our bios of both 
well, Station to Station, Low, and Heroes, I think, all kind of continue the narrative. So, mm-hmm. uh, Bowie, that was a, uh, the Berlin trilogy was during that time. Low first, Heroes second, and Lodger third. Uh, Low and Heroes were both 77, and Lodger was 79, so this is 1980. So, Bowie had done the full Berlin trilogy. Um, and after the Berlin trilogy, he'd received an incredible amount of critical acclaim, even though critical acclaim was not exactly something that Bowie was really ever searching for in the 70s. Uh, one thing he did not get, though, guys, was large record sales, because the Berlin trilogy were not particularly successful commercially. So um, it's kind of by 1980, Bowie had kind of gotten to an interesting point where he'd influenced a ton of people with with the Berlin trilogy, right? And those people had sort of taken the formula and made higher selling albums based as not necessarily on the prototype, but derivative of what he was doing on those albums. So Bowie's taking a look at this. He goes into the studio with Tony Visconti, who we've talked about a ton with Bowie in the 70s. He's kind of all over the place with him. And he goes into the studio between February and April of 1980. He's in New York City at the Power Station, which is a pretty famous a recording studio and he does a little bit of recording also in london he brings back the band uh that has been with him since station to station uh, and he also brings in some big hitters he's got a guest appearance by pete townsend he's got robert fripp in there he's got chuck mm. hammer in there and so he's got a lot of big hitters um and so bowie kind of creates an album that in his mind is the prototype for the new decade, the 80s, incorporating some of that art rock he's known for with almost another... uh, He doesn't have a a persona necessarily that's associated with this, like the Thin White Duke or Ziggy Stardust, but this is sort of his his movement into the 80s right here. So some have said it's kind of like a more commercial version of the stuff that he was doing um, in the Berlin trilogy. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, this album did get both critical and commercial success. Uh, it peaked at number one in the UK, um, and also uh, Bowie hit number 12 in the US with this album. So, you know, he was able to both accomplish the goal of staying very critically, like considered to be sort of ahead of the curve, but also finding the recipe again for being a, a high-selling um, artist. Mm-hmm. So that's there. Um, so that is a little bit of the piece of where David Bowie was at the time. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of discussion about how Visconti felt that this was sort of the, the Bowie album that they were, you know, kind of working towards throughout the seventies. He felt it was sort of their Sergeant Pepper at one point. I saw him describe it as in terms of what they had been going for. Um, some people consider this to be like sort of the last great album of Bowie's most prolific period. Um, you know, we're we're still very early in the game with Bowie, so you know we'll we certainly can revisit that idea. Um, but this does sort of, um, while it's 1980, it does sort of put a coda on the um, on that Bowie run of the 70s, right? Like I, even though it's in the 80s, it kind of to me is is the the period on the end of the sentence that is Bowie's 70s run. Um, it's also eclectic, like most Bowie is. There's elements of new wave and post-punk, art rock, some of the experimentation, um, things like that. Um, lyrically, I don't know how much you guys paid attention to that, but um, the thing that is described often in the research I've done is that it's, uh, I've, I heard it described harsh, manic, things along those lines, um, very uh, reflective um, and kind of veering in between 
things like anger and madness and craziness and then love uh, at different points. Uh, but they also say it's a warmer album and a more accessible album lyrically than some of Bowie's stuff. So there you go. There's a lot of interesting factoids that I'll build in. But we have... I think I'd rather, you know, weave it in to the discussion. So with that being said, Josh, thoughts, Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. Not an album I had listened to before, but man, I'm glad it did. Bowie, Bowie's done it again for me. I, I really love this album and mark it down. It's my number one album of the 80s right now. Of the oh, wow. <laughs> my it's a strong, strong take right there, Josh, coming out of the gates. <laughs> so uh, I've learned from my mistakes in the past and we'll be ranking these as I, as we listen to them, as we go this time. Um, calling that the John approach. <laughs> yes. Are you using his, are you using his algorithm? Nope, it's all heart. It's all heart. Oh, damn. <laughs> You're like a Springsteen I like character. That. I like that. Uh, so uh, I, d I definitely picked up on the fact that it was more commercial, but I, again, Bowie uh, is really able to somehow be different and unique, but also make really catchy songs. Um, the synth is all over this album, which I appreciate, but it's used in different and interesting ways, especially on songs such as like Ashes to Ashes. Um, he's not afraid to put some, uh, you know, he's still dabbling in different genres um as you mentioned there's there's kind of a funk baseline and fashion and it almost reminds me of a prince song in in some ways and um just showing his originality by bookending the the album with uh, uh it's no game part one and two and and including the japanese uh musician who kind of sings the vocals in japanese and then he repeats um, what she's saying, but he's like screaming it almost, and his voice is really strained, and at least on the first, the first opening track, and then it's kind of more relaxed and subdued at, by the time the album ends. And I, I was a little um, the first time I listened to this, I was like, okay, this is, this is um, okay. I, I liked some songs, you know, like like uh, Ashes to Ashes and Fashion were kind of the clear standouts for me. But the more I listened to it, the more like every song is kind of really awesome. <laughs> and there there are some weaker songs on here, but for the most part, like a good three quarters of the album is great, if not more than that. And, um, and he just has, he continues to... Um, use percussion in interesting ways. The guitar is still kind of front and center, um, different. I, I mean, Mick Ronson's not on this, but, but, um, I think, uh, Pete Townsend makes an appearance. Is that right, John? On uh, one of these. He songs? does. He plays guitar. Yeah. yeah I so look, does... I looked that up. It's not like I knew what Pete Townsend on guitar. Sounds yeah. Ta but... <laughs> Townsend was on because you're young yeah. and Robert Fripp was on many songs. Yes. Um, and then the synth, which you mentioned before, Bowie plays some, Chuck Hammer plays it on a couple, and Andy Clark plays it on four different songs. Mm. Bowie is actually credited with vocals, synths, Mellotron, electric piano, piano, synth bass, sound effects, backing vocals, and saxophones. So wow. he was a busy man on this album. But yeah, this is, this is an album that really grew on me, and after, I think my last great Bowie album of the 70s was low i think that was the one i responded to the most of the berlin trilogy and so i was i was glad that to hear this and kind of welcome back the fun um more fun inspired bowie did you ever listen to lodger josh i did but i didn't 
it was kind of around the heroes time that we when we mm-hmm. were having that discussion so i don't really remember much of it and in, in placing it in context with the other two um nothing really stood out from what i can recall gotcha uh matt you want to jump in so I'm going to run the numbers first. Um, oh, yeah. Awesome. Because we didn't do that. So uh, <laughs> Scary Monsters and Super Creeps comes in at number 42 in the 1980s on Best Ever Albums. Number four in 1980. Number three, th- 336 of all time. It's Bowie's eighth highest rated album on Best Ever Albums. So, yeah, we've covered seven. One of them is actually the well, higher rated album, Black Star. We're not going to cover until the 2010s. Um, the sixth <laughs> like three years from now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it did make Rolling Stones list coming in at number 443. Um, so my take on this album, I, I, I did very much like it. And I think I, I really like going into these Bowie albums because, as I mentioned before, my, my, my main knowledge, I, I knew, I did know Ziggy Stardust. I knew that album. Um, but most of Bowie's stuff I knew from his greatest hits, uh, singles, double album that I got like in the 90s. Um, and it's cool to kind of just like listen to these albums and find out which two or three songs are appearing on the record that were in the set that I knew. Oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. And so he bunches them all up here with scary monsters, ashes to ashes and fashion. Um, so I knew all of those really well. Um, and I will have to say, like, I came out of this, like, I liked Ashes to Ashes before. I love it now. Like, that song mm-hmm. is so great. It's got my, mm-hmm. my favorite moment on the album is at the end where he's, he does that whole other part where he's like, my mother said to get things done, you better not mess with Major Tom. And then, like, and then there's this synth part in the back, this, like, really heavy kind of quasi-distorted synth that's, like, almost like it's like a dramatic, menacing sound. And it's just, it sounds so great. Um, and so I just, it is got, it's got the great bass line. It's got that cool little pinging sound, whatever's happening there. It's probably some right. sort of synth. Um, and it's just, uh, that's just a great song. So I really like that. Um, but a lot of new songs here I didn't know. I, I like how it opens and ends with It's No Game. I like the different versions of that. And they're kind of, um, you know, the, the bass line there is, uh, is, is very catchy. Um, you know, Teenage Wildlife might be my favorite new track that I didn't know before. That's just a really, it's a really pretty song. I love the guitar tone on that. It's got like a very kind of distinctive it's kind of an 80s sounding guitar tone but it's also it's not like a cheesy i wouldn't say that it's like one of those cheesy 80s effects um so uh, it, it is interesting you can kind of hear the bridging into from the 70s into the 80s um with with some of these songs and um there's a lot of effects that he does with his voice um right off the bat and he gets into really screaming and it's no game he's kind of like <laughs> he's yeah. like it's some sort of panic screaming mode there um but uh, some really great deep cuts. I don't think there was a bad song on here. Um, Up the Hill Backwards, I thought, was an interesting song because there was kind of like a... a with, the, with the vocals there, with the background vocals, it was almost kind of like an R&B kind of funk, you know, kind of uh, sound. Not like that was a funky sound, but just like the vocals, it mm-hmm. sounded like something that would be on, the, on like a funk or, or R&B record. And then it breaks down into like kind of like a quasi Bo Diddley beat with the guitar part. So just a lot of interesting things that he's throwing at this and uh, a fun listen. Bowie's great. I agree with you, Josh. This is my number one album of the 80s so far. <laughs> great. Gotcha. I, I, a lot, I agree a lot with a lot of you guys have said. I, I certainly think it's higher than number seven in terms of Bowie albums for me. Now, I know one could be like a later Bowie album, but I really like this album. And I think what was interesting about this album is 
and it's mentioned often in terms of the research I did that they say it's it's Bowie's most modern sounding album. And I know what they're going for there because this does sound like an album that could have been made anytime in the late 70s, the 80s, the 90s, or even now to some degree. It has a, a sort of timeless quality to it. Um, I love certain Bowie's, like versions of Bowie. A, like I like a lot of them, but there's certain ones I really like. One is a guitar-driven David Bowie. And the thing that stands out to me on this album is the guitar on this album is excellent. It, it really is. Like whether it's the Robert Fripp parts, which I'm now, you know, he was on Heroes too. And I'm starting to really get a, a feel for what Robert Fripp's guitar sounds like because without even knowing he was on it, I kind of was able to pick up his guitar tone a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think every album that he plays on, he adds sort of a level of frenetic energy to it, which yeah. really, which really plays well with Bowie's like what Bowie's writing about on this. Because this album is there's a lot going on for Bowie. You can kind of tell, and he's um pretty direct at times. I mean, it's you could tell he's writing about divorce. He's you know in Ashes to Ashes, he's saying you know Major Tom's a junkie, which you know clearly. You know, he's writing that about himself, you know, it's it probably like what his 70s was like, because we've talked at length about what that's like. Um, he's still doing social commentary. But yeah, this this struck me as more of a personal album. And the, the Robert Fripp guitar parts and the tone really added to it. Um, I keep going back to I really love his backing band. Um, and when they when they delve into things that have a funk background, which goes all the way back to that plastic soul Bowie when he was playing around with that, but it's there. Um, I just really like the funk version of David Bowie too. Um, I know you guys love the term danceable um, and you know, there is a danceability to it, but not like in a go to the club dance. It's more like, I find it to be more like danceable in the like dancing in your own house or apartment type way. Or just bobbing your head, kind of just like kind of bouncing. It's got like a bouncy nature to it. Yes, it's just it's it's very interesting because you sometimes sonically you it's catchy the music he's making, but I'm not going to say it's ominous, but you know that in bobbing your head at it, you're not listening to something frivolous either. That's a right. Does does that make sense? There's like a a little bit of a sinister element under it. It's not it's not like uh, ear candy, like bubblegum pop stuff. It's uh, there's there's something more to it than that. Yeah, like it, it, it sort of seduces you and you gravitate towards it, but you also sort of know that in bobbing your head, there's a part of you, if you're not paying attention really quickly, you're like, I'm sure I'm missing something here. So <laughs> right. like, what what am I bobbing my head to here? You know, and different stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So um, so that element is here. But yeah, this um, I this is a very mature David Bowie. I feel like he, he has a real grasp of what he's trying to do and, and the instead of sort of, uh, you know, the shape-shifting that was so quick that was highly entertaining for me, but you do feel the turmoil for Bowie. I feel like this is a more lived-in Bowie to some degree, like a, yeah. a, post, a post-trauma Bowie, I would almost say, um, where he's almost like writing the equivalent of his memoirs of the 70s, I feel like, is how I, um, I processed his lyrics. And sonically, yeah, it's a dance album. With, with still some of the elements of the Plastic Soul going over. Um, 
yeah, I just, I really like this album. And it also rewards repeat listening, which I think you yes. guys have both mentioned before. Um, and just, it's amazing how Bowie just sneaks these albums and you're like, oh, I'm aware of it, but holy cow, yeah. that album's fantastic too. And next thing you know, you're trying to figure out, well, to, in, in my case, it's like, did I like Station to Station or Low better? And oh, wait, can Ziggy Stardust actually be my third favorite Bowie album of the 70s? That seems crazy. You mm-hmm. know, different stuff like that. So, um, you know, and then you like an album like Heroes, which I really liked. You're like, oh, I don't know. That might only be my fifth best Bowie. Yeah. And you're like, Jesus, that would be like <laughs> any other guy's best. You know, yeah. like, almost like you undersell it because you're like, well, you know, it's not low, but, you know. Yeah, he's so. entering. He's entered like the Beatles territory, right? Where you can yeah. like you can make a yeah. good argument for just about any album he's put out, like up until. And it's kind of what sonic palette you're looking yeah. for, really. That's yeah. kind of you know. Do you want more experimental? Okay, Berlin trilogy. Do you want more danceable? You could do this, or you could do Station to Station because he's got you know disco done right on that. Do you want more proggy or glammy? Okay, Ziggy Stardust is there. Maybe even a little bit of Aladdin scene. Do you want? You know, old school 50s rock sound. Well, you got a little bit of that in pop and hunky dory, right? And if you like piano, you know, hunky dory. So you've got all of these different sounds um, along the way, Sonic Palette. And, and that's really what I like about him because there's, there's nuts and bolts parts of Bowie's sound, and he, but he's always varying it um, and, and creating those personas and, and still feeling as if he's a couple years ahead of everybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, after the Berlin trilogy, which upon reflection is kind of more somber and, and maybe contemplative and, you know, experimenting with the crowd rock. This feels lighter, even though maybe the lyrics aren't necessarily light. It just feels like you said, the maturity is there and, and maybe just a, a bit of fun is back into the music. Um, well, and I should also mention that one thing we haven't really touched on a lot because it's kind of just coming now, uh, but I've talked about is that idea of like the, the new romantic sound that becomes huge in Great Britain in the early 80s. And there's definitely proto elements of the new romantic sound in this, which might be a little bit of what you're hearing, Josh. Um, the smoothing, and, and we did, you know, we covered like Roxy music and stuff that, you know, but earlier, 74 Roxy, so they're not full on new romantic at that, at this point, or at that point, right, like right. they would be later, but we're, we will be spending a fair amount of time uh, with some of the British albums that we cover in new romantic, and then of course there's the more pop version of it that comes out in things like, you know, Duran Duran or Spandau Ballet and stuff like that, you know, Um mm-hmm orchestral maneuvers in the dark you know that those things uh Mm. but that's a sound that's coming and while we haven't talked about it yet i do feel the need to say like i'm familiar with some of that sound and certainly there's elements of laying the train tracks for that here yep yeah i like seeing how just because i didn't look at this beforehand but i like just hearing oh and then this person played on here and this person like robert fripp and 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 pete townsend and he's always got people like this you know also played on here was the professor Roy Batan from uh, or Roy Batan from the, the E Street Band played on a piano and a couple of tracks here. So I like how that they just sneak that in there, like artists that you know from like other other bands or other people, and um, and then just like yeah, they you know they're just contributing to a Bowie album, and that's it. And you wouldn't have known that otherwise unless you looked it up on Wikipedia right. or read about it. So uh, I think that's cool. Well, there's all kinds of interesting anecdotes about this album too, like the fact that you know Bowie was close to John Lennon, and later in 1980, it came out that actually. Actually, um, uh, Lennon's assassin had also entertained the idea of David Bowie. Um, but, you know, in the aftermath of this, Bowie became a little bit of a recluse because it shook him a little bit. But 
there was different stuff like that. So that's one thing that's yeah, there. Wasn't there a story? Mm-hmm. Wasn't there a story like right after Lennon was killed, uh, Bowie gave a concert and he was looking at two seats that were supposed to be occupied by mm-hmm. o- uh, Yoko and John Lennon. But it was like right after he died, it was like it really affected him. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yep. It's there. Uh, uh, the uh, title track of the album dates back to like 1975 when Bowie was playing this for Iggy Pop. So that's how far back uh, mm-hmm. Scary Monster Super Creeps goes back. Um, it's also, um, did you guys catch an inspiration in that song, Scary Monsters and Super Creeps? And I, I did as I listened. Um, did you catch the drums? Did you, did you hear what the drums sounded like? Because I caught it right away. Kind of like, like a drum machine or something. Well, it was inspired by um, uh, the sound that's of Stephen Morris on She's Lost Control by Joy Division. Oh, God, no. No, for sure. Not. If you go back and listen to it, you will definitely okay. hear it. Yep. Uh, did you catch David Bowie using a Cockney accent? By the way, I, yes, I did. Yes. Okay. That's a, <laughs> that's in there. So that was a, a personal choice. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, and then uh, there are there's also like um, you know his his inspiration. There was you know Teenage Wildlife was supposed to be sort of his take on a Ronette song, albeit a much mm. longer version of it which I thought was very interesting. So there's there's all kinds of stuff. There's also like Bowie writing an, an American AOR song, as they described it, which is what Kingdom uh, Kingdom Come is supposed to be. It's like Motown meets American AOR was how it was described, which I thought was very an interesting combo. So yeah, there's a lot of anecdotes on this album. Um, it's an interesting album to read about. With that being said, I think it's very much like a continuation of Bowie yeah. as opposed to like a, you know, an like an album where it's like this marks this definitive shift right i think it was more of a continuation of the tricks that he's learned yeah yeah Yeah, i would agree with that no it's uh like i said i mean there's there's marks of the 70s but also the 80s here and it's there's it kind of blends together a little bit overall with the sound i agree i don't i didn't really notice a huge you know difference sonically between this and some of the other stuff that he had done in the late 70s but um it's all really good like he's just a he's just an immensely talented person and uh yeah, I'm glad we're going through all these albums so I get to know more than just the the quote unquote singles, you know, the hits. So, right. yeah, and I'll be curious when we start covering new romantic stuff if we can pull even more out of this album than we got the first time because I do feel you know there's those albums we cover and then we're like, geez, you know, as we listen to more stuff, boy, we start to realize how this album really played. I do feel like for the '80s, I feel this is ahead of where the the '80s sound is going. So when we start to hear where it goes, uh, kind of like how we're starting to get to the stuff that Lowe inspired, and you start to hear it, and you're like, oh, yeah, I get that, you know, like how, how Lowe came, you know, stuff came from Lowe. I mm-hmm. wonder if that's going to be something in, like, when we get to, like, albums in 1982, we're like, well, yeah, definitely, Scary Monster Super Creeps was an influence on that. I have a feeling that's going to happen. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think and we're only it. covering, I think we're covering Bowie one more time in the 80s. Right, we're doing uh, Let's Dance, right? Let's da- uh Are we doing Let's Dance? Maybe not. I made Rolling Stones list. I think I thought that's okay. Maybe it's in Rolling Stones. Okay, yeah. So I hope it, so. It did, that's got some it, bangers on it, man. Yeah, if it did, we're we're going to be covering it. And you know, as I meant, showed you guys the the Mick Jagger, David yeah, so Bowie we cover Let's Dance. Dancing in the street is on that one, right? Okay, and that's yeah. the, the ultimate episode of Cold Listen. Memeable. It's becoming the ultimate memeable thing, isn't it? And, <laughs> yeah, he does it for as much. For as much as he did in the seventies, it doesn't sound like he. It doesn't look like he had a ton of output in the eighties. Well, he kind of tried to reinvent himself in like 
the Labyrinth. late 80s, it was kind of the first time <laughs> where he true. kind of felt he kind of couldn't get it right, you know? And like then in the 90s, he sort of reinvented himself as a electronic music because, you know, right. he's around Trent Reznor and, Trent stuff, Reznor, and like yes, the house music and stuff. But yeah, the late 80s, I know, is like the first time when kind of he didn't quite get it right. Um, is how I always remember it being described. So, you know, I'll, maybe I'll go into that a little bit more when we cover Less Dance. Hey, that's the best artist, though. I mean, the best guy, the best guys are the ones. You know, they still try to they try to do something. It doesn't really work out. They kind of have a bunch of crappy albums, or they kind of go away for a while to figure stuff out. And it's hard to just to keep it up after decade after decade. You know, he also like married Iman and probably got peace of mind. And yeah. I think we all know that when people get happy, their music starts to suck. You know, it and sure that's, does. Yeah, and I mean that's, that's the, why that's I'd the be a terrible thing. musician, John. I'm too happy. You just want people to be happy, so like you hate the idea that like you're like, oh no, stay unhappy so you make great music. But yeah, there does you just kind of not a lot. Not a lot of people write what I consider to be good music mm-hmm. when they're like super content. Yeah, Bowie had four albums in the 1980s. He had this, Let's Dance in 83, Tonight in 84, and Never Let Me Down in 87. There you go. Okay. Well, maybe I'll do, like I said, when we get to Let's Dance, maybe I'll do a little bit of a quick bullet point retrospective of what those sound like. We'll maybe do it for like Neil Young, too, <laughs> mm, <laughs> because yeah. he had an interesting 80s as well. So, But yeah, I, I think, is it fair to say before I kick it over to Matt that three pretty, pretty big thumbs up? I would say that. I, I would, yes, I like this album quite a bit. Yeah, me too. I, I liked it a lot. All right, Matt, the floor is yours, my friend. All right. So uh, ACDC's Black, Back in Black, and then the opening montage, you heard Hell's Bells, and now you're going to hear a clip from You Shook Me All Night Long. So Back in Black comes in at number 17 in the 1980s on Best Ever Albums, number three in 1980, and number 136 of all time. It also made Rolling Stones list coming in at number 84. Uh, the album was recorded in uh, from April to May of 1980, and it was released on July 25th, 1980. And it is ACDC's seventh studio album. Uh, this is the one that came right after uh, Highway to Hell, which we covered uh about a couple, maybe a couple months ago in the 1970s. Uh, again, it was produced by Mutt Lang, so he makes another appearance here as the producer. And this album yields four singles, You Shook Me All Night Long, Hell's Bells, Rock and Roll Ain't Noise Pollution, and Back in Black. And this is a big one, guys. It has sold an estimated 50 million copies worldwide, <laughs> making it the second best-selling album in music history. Wow. Behind, of course... Thriller. Exactly, yep. So uh, this is... 
sold a ton of uh, of records. Um, it does include the, the band members Brian Johnson on lead vocals, Angus Young on lead guitar, Malcolm Young on rhythm guitar and backing vocals, Cliff Williams on bass and backing vocals, and Phil Rudd on drums. My so, favorite thing is that Back in Black has 992,163,355 plays. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... Uh, that's 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 close to a billion, if I'm not mistaken, John. Close to, yeah. It's probably about you know nine hundred ninety thousand more than you need to hear. But nine 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 nine. Matt, that was the same spot. <laughs> All right, so a little history of this. So the group had just come off the heels of their success with 79's Highway to Hell, and they begin recording for the follow-up record, and that's of course when tragedy strikes on February nineteenth, nineteen eighty. Uh, at that time, lead singer Bon Scott passed out in a car on the way to a friend's house after a night of drinking. Um, the friend's name was Alistair Kinnear. And um, so they get to Kinnear's house, and Kinnear can't really wake him up or move him from the car. So he decides just to leave him there, let him sleep it off. And then the next morning, uh, Kinnear finds Scott non-responsive, and he rushes him to the, uh, the King's College Hospital, where he was pronounced dead on arrival. And the cause of death was acute alcohol poisoning and pulmonary aspiration of vomit. So, um, yeah, we talked a little bit about his hard living the last uh, last episode and um, or the last time we covered them. So, obviously, this was very traumatic for the band. They considered retiring and calling it quits, um, but this was uh, refuted. Or basically, Scott's parents were encouraging the band to keep going on. That's what that's what he would have wanted, and so they kind of agreed. They considered a number of different replacements, and um, but they did remember Brian Johnson, who was formerly of a band called Georgie, which I had never heard of before, G-O-R-D-G-I-E. I don't know if you guys have heard of that band before, but that was uh, his band I have in not. the 70s. And, uh, but they had remembered Bon Scott uh, had being impressed by Johnson's vocals, and um, the other members decided to seek him out. And he announced he was announced as a new lead singer on April first, nineteen eighty. Oh, so he'd gotten co-signed, sort of, by Bon Scott yeah. unofficially. Okay, yeah, he was actually probably it's not, it sounded like Bon Scott was more familiar with him than anybody else. Um, and so, uh, but but they but everybody else was kind of aware who he was of who he was, and they decided to go with him. And this album was was written by uh, Malcolm and Angus Young as well as Brian Johnson, and recorded over seven weeks in the Bahamas. Uh, so it's another one of those things where uh, they, they, they leave England. Well, first of all, they, they apparently they said they wanted to record there, but there weren't enough stu- there weren't any studios available somehow. So they were like, uh, we, ha- we have no place to go. And they also thought, you know, we could go somewhere else and avoid taxes. So um, so they go to the Bahamas and they record they record in the Bahamas. That's one of those uh, let's make a decision and then think about what's going to happen afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, if I you just can't love trust ACDC to make a <laughs> solid decision on the fly. Then who can just, you trust guys? I, I just love it. Like everybody, it's like the taxing, the taxes in England must, we always, we keep coming back to that brutal. some, some way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Were they like, were they brutal? Were they like bad, but also rock stars like to spend money or like what, what, what do you think it was? Like, I, you know what it's, it's, they probably weren't, well, I don't know. The, it, it probably depends. Right. Cause the, I know the Beatles were getting like, like crazy hit, hit hard, crazy hard with the taxes, like an unbelievable amount. So I, I don't know if ACDC was quite that level, but, um, it does seem like it's affecting a lot of people and they're pissed off. So, yeah. uh, well, the yeah. tax rate in England 
1979, it stands out here, so right around this area. Okay. It, the top rate was reduced from 83% to 60%, and the basic rate was 33 to 30%. So wow. basically, it looks like they had a progressive income tax, which is the, like the richer you were, the more you paid, which actually the United States did too, like in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Uh, and 83 idea. is pretty yeah that's right the 83 is pretty freaking high can you imagine somebody mm-hmm. trying to get <laughs> well but it's to only for the top now? it's only for the top two percent yeah in england so i mean it's kind of like i guess it comes down to what your politics are right yeah yeah um so yeah so they uh they decided to go with bonds or brian johnson's uh lyrics they didn't want to they did bond scott had written some lyrics for the record but they didn't want to they didn't want to use them as, you know, they thought that maybe profiting off of his lyrics after his death would have been um, in poor taste. So they just, they just let Brian Johnson write all the lyrics. Um, recording was not easy as the studio was a little subpar in the Bahamas, and they also had to endure several tropical storms. Um, <laughs> and some of that was actually reflected in Johnson's lyrics, uh, like the opening lyrics to Hell's Bells is reflecting the, uh, the storms that were actually happening while they were recording. So uh, Mutt Lang was certainly did not lose any of his uh, his, his his professionalism and his uh, his his uh, you know uh, uh, I got perfectionism really I mean because he was he was driving the band members crazy um, especially Brian Johnson he had him just sing out one note at a time he was he was really uh, specific about when he should take a, a breath he didn't want the album to sound like it was too produced that he was so produced that somebody actually could not sing like hold the notes out as long as, as, as the effects were. So he was really trying to train Brian Johnson to sing in a certain way. Um, but he absolutely drove him nuts. So that wasn't a pleasant experience for him. Um, but upon the, upon the release, the album was a pretty much an immediate success. It tops the UK charts for two weeks and it made it to number four in the U S charts where it stayed in the top 10 for over five months. Um, it also, the success of the record also propelled the previous albums, Highway to Hell, If You Want Blood, You Got It, and Let There Be Rock, uh, to all enter the British charts again, which made ACDC the first band since the Beatles to have four albums in the British Top 100 charts at the wow. same time. Wow. <laughs> yep. It also prompted their, the U.S. label Atlantic to release Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap, in the in the United States for the first time, so um, so they're not only getting a ton of sales of Back in Black, but it's seeing a resurgence in their other sales, and this mm-hmm. is just yeah, they're 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 going to the stratosphere here with this record. Um, a couple of reviews that I had to laugh at, I wanted to share because there were some mixed reviews here. Uh, David Frick, writing for Rolling Stone in 1980, regarded Back in Black as quote not only the best of ACDC's six album six American albums, but the apex of heavy metal art. The first LP since Led Zeppelin II that captures all the blood, sweat, and arrogance of the genre. While Robert Christgau was less than enthusiastic, uh, finding the band somewhat quote too primitive and their sexual image imagery unimaginative. He said that Angus Young does does come up with killer riffs, um, though not as consistently as a refined person like myself might hope. A little arrogance there. And, and lead singer Brian Johnson sing like sings like there's a cattle prod at his scrotum. Just this thing for fans who can't decide whether their newfound testosterone is agony or ecstasy. Um, and he also called You Shook Me All Night Long uh, a, a drum-hooked fuck song and the band's <laughs> only great work of art. Um, so he wasn't a fan. But then somebody, I like this one, Kitty Empire of the Observer, 
acknowledge that Back in Black is a preposterous uh, drognoid record built on casual sexism, eye-rolling double entendres, a highly questionable attitude to sexual consent, a penchant for firearms, and a crass celebration of the unthinking macho hedonism that killed the band's original singer. Nonetheless, she concurred with Frick's original view of the album as a heavy metal masterpiece and named it her favorite album ever. <laughs> so I just I, I loved reading those 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 reviews. But uh, but yeah, this is a huge album. It's got it's just it, it's it's sold a ridiculous amount of records. And um, I have a couple things to follow up here. But John, what's your take on Back in Black? I mean, let me start by saying that any album with a, a three-song run of What You Do For Money, Honey, Giving the Dog a Bone, and Let Me Put My Love Into You is, I mean, you kind of know what you're Kiss, getting. That's Kiss great, level song title right there. That's Spinal Tap level yes. song titles right there. Down, it's kind actually. of what it is. Yeah, so, me I mean. cake with your knife. It's, yeah, it's, and, uh, yeah, I was about to say, and that's just the titles. Within it, it's even more. So I love also, like, that most of, like, ACDC's songs are sort of about like living life on the edge a little bit and um you know and also like just things like have a drink on me can be like have a drink on me or like literally have a drink on me you know what i mean it's kind of you know stuff like that so i i do love acdc for i mean this is such a hard album to rate because it's (laughs) It's... like it's like remember when the cars called their first album their greatest hits album and they and they joked around about like that this is kind i mean acdc has a ton of hits right but this is sort of the pinnacle ones right you've got hell's bells to start which is just a big uh iconic to use a word that's overused but iconic song shoot to thrill is this just gigantic blue and the whole album is just gigantic blues riffs right with just mm-hmm. r- blues riffs with heavy like riffing uh, you know a metallic riffing on a blues rip ahead of it and just you know throat ripping out vocals which is the to me that's the brian Bon Scott sang that way too, but Brian Johnson like takes it to the arena rock, you know, like he, there's an element of bombast with him, right? There's, there's no subtlety or like winking at all with him. Like there was with Bon Scott a little bit, like Bon Scott always seemed to me more to be tailored a little bit more to like pubs or mid sized things. Like when they get Brian Johnson, like this is the beginning of like ACDC is like a massive, like arena rock band. And like, it leads like the later 80s where it's like you know thunderstruck and money talks and you know all this tnt you know songs like that that are just these huge massive songs like that so this is the beginning of that so yeah you go from shoot to throw then you get the the three double entendre songs you get back in black which is massive and a huge hit you've got you shook me all night long which is funny because like i always i always have described you shook me all night long as like it's kind of like pour some sugar on me and the fact that like you could hear it in a mall and like an older conservative woman would say, oh, I really like that song. Yeah. Or it sounds like the first song that the stripper of the night like listens to as well. Like, and it somehow makes both work, you know, like it's like first song in the strip club mixed with like song played that 55 year old mother in Des Moines, Iowa, like also likes, which yep. it's, it's hard to write a song like that. You know that 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 can get both audiences, but there you go. You shook me all night long. Is that song? Rock and roll ain't noise pollution. Is it sounds like it should be on like the Bill and Ted soundtrack to some degree. I've always felt like, and it's a ma- another massive hit. Um, I I do think I've always loved the song Shake a Leg yeah. as well. Um, and it's just it's I th- I've always thought that's one of the most that and shoot to shoot to thriller. 
I feel two very underrated ACDC songs. But yeah, I mean, ACDC is not going to reinvent the wheel. Um, I know that there are a couple people who are really, really angry at me for saying that ACDC operates in the same lane that Kiss does, but I'm not going to differentiate from that because they're both blues-based rock groups, right, that you know, play huge, heavy riffs, have great stage performances. They don't reinvent the wheel. You know, does AC, you know, does Angus Young have a little bit more um, creativity and, and musical ability in, in terms of such? Sure, I, I absolutely say that. But I, f- I feel like to some degree, they're designed to be played loud. They're designed to be, you know, either blasting out of your speakers in a car or, you know, you tailgate and you go watch them. And and I love that. You know, that's what like hard rock is supposed to be. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be played loud. It's not supposed to make you overthink or, or, or wonder about ulterior motives. You know what I mean? It's really, it's about, you know, drinking, screwing, you know, living yeah. life, exciting, being young, you know. Giving dogs all, bones. All, all, but just that's, <laughs> I, I, that's what I'm getting at. It's like a hedonistic thing. It's almost yeah. like you, you yeah. get to live by proxy and you know i i i worry a little bit about rock that we've kind of gone away from people not being able to recognize like when somebody's winking at you you know talking about mm. this stuff and when they're being dead serious right acdc is right. kind of hard though because like bond scott kind of did live that lifestyle which did do it but i think there is a lot of winking you know i, I you know these stories are ridiculous on the face some of them and so from that end of things it, it's I, I always hope there is rock and roll like this. I don't want to say like big, dumb rock and roll because it's not dumb, but like just big, riff-heavy, you know, blues-based rock that's, you know, amplifier plugged in, turned up to 11 type rock. So, yeah, I mean, this is an easy thumbs up for me. How can you not like Back in Black? My God, it's like, <laughs> it's like, it's like cotton candy in the best way yeah. possible. So, yeah, I mean, obviously strong recommend here. This is great stuff. And, it, and by the way, it's also an upgrade on Highway to Hell, I'd like to point out, because this album's, I think, way more consistent and doesn't really have any tracks that slow down the process. I mean, this yeah. is just straight ahead the whole time. So um, to me, there is a higher level here that they reached with this album from Highway to Hell. I mean, arguably, this is their highest level. This is the album you would give somebody to introduce. Well, it's what, yeah, the second, the second yeah. biggest selling album of all time. Yeah, what's the higher yeah. level? And I, I would push back. These are, are barely double entendres. They are like entendres. They're yeah, so exactly. Like, <laughs> there's no like subtext. Um, yeah. I, yeah. What can you say about this album? It's got a, a huge amount of hits. I, I heard this album so many times and some of these songs so many times that i kind of know every beat to them in some way like down to like playing the air drums or like when when a, a riff comes in and they are just, acdc is like the perfect workout music for me it's it's really like mm-hmm. gets you energized it like you said it just uh it gets you in a good mood it it you know just brings the energy and it's like cock rock at its finest i i suppose and it's you're there for like you said the kind of tongue-in-cheek nature of it plus like the massive guitar riffs and angus young that they come up over and over again in this um thing starting with with hell's bells and and ending with rock and roll ain't noise pollution but i think there is um sometimes i think we said this on on um 
their their previous album that some of the songs and riffs kind of like are interchangeable with other songs on their albums like you could this is almost like a greatest hit song but some of them kind of remind me of other acdc songs like shake a leg the start of that sounds almost exactly like dirty deeds thunder cheap mm-hmm. and some of them like uh let me put my love into you has a similar <laughs> opening to hell's bells like that's it, on the same oh. album it's kind of like similar you get you know it's like flashbacks oh, like, to the earlier in the album even though even though in the spinal tap it was a ballad but every time i hear let me put my love in you i think of the song when the guy from spinal tap is explaining like what he's been working on it's like this beautiful piano yes. piece and they ask him what it is and he goes lick my love pump and so yeah. it's like yeah yep and uh but i i think my standout track is hell's bells on this i i really love mm-hmm. that bells tolling motif that when they do that on rock songs it really kind of makes it ominous and sets sets a mood right away and and that combined with the like massive guitar behind it as it starts really just kind of sets the stage and for the whole album really it's it's just a great song so josh greater bell part hell's bells or for whom the bell tolls by metallica yeah that i thought of that um Mm -hmm. i i'd say hell's bells probably gotcha um I also kind of like the bridge on Shoot to Thrill when they when they drop out the the guitar and there's no lyrics and it just shows the uh, I think it's drums and um, like the keyboard or, or I guess it is a guitar. I can't remember, but um, it's it's like kind of a relief and then they or like a respite and then they like go back into the ramp it up again um well and brian johnson's vocals are like that's the ultimate brian because they're so urgent right it's like he's just like performing like shoot shoot shoot," you know like the whole time it's just kind of like i don't know how to describe it but it like sets up that Mm -hmm. urgency perfectly you know yeah so in some ways this is like the easiest hard rock album to probably give someone that it kind of encapsulates everything that hard rock is about in kind of this easily digestible manner and there's not a lot of complexity but like you said there's not a you don't need that all the time and so yeah i i like this album i don't i don't love it especially i don't know compared to other albums that we'll discuss in the 80s but but um yeah it's fun yeah yeah, I um well I I do love this album but just kind of in a different way than like cuz it's for all the reasons that you guys have said and I think it's 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 amazing that you can catch the lyrics this time. <laughs> I yeah, I did catch the lyrics this time. It's, it's, the the cake thing. How did you read them, let, Matt? Were you able to slice interpret? my yeah. cake with well, let me slice your cake with my knife might be my favorite <laughs> lyric. I was just like that was funny. That made me laugh. Like just just like hearing the titles makes me laugh, you know. Give the t- <laughs> it's just it's so ridiculous but yeah. the music is so kick-ass it's so great and it's amazing that you could put on any one of these songs and obviously you know there's some songs i know on on here better than others but as soon as you hear it's something like you hear an acdc guitar riff or a drum beat or whatever and it's like that's acdc they don't veer too far from their lane um and but that doesn't take away from how enjoyable this album is, you know, and how and how fun it is and how how just great it makes you feel, you know, and there's something to be said for that. You keep doing the same, relatively the same thing over and over again, and you're still really good at it. It doesn't get boring. 
that's awesome. Like, you know, and that's what this album is to me. Um, there's, a, there's definitely some standouts though. I, I absolutely agree with you, Josh. Hell's Bells stands out as like the, as, as the best song of this record that the opening bells, that guitar part at the very beginning is just, it's, to me, it's a different level. It's got this menacing thing going on. I like how the drum comes in and they, they build up to it. And, um, and it's got my my favorite part on this album. This might be what I start doing is trying to figure out like what's my favorite part of the record, and that comes for here. It comes yeah. on on Hell's Bells, where it's like it's like with Johnson's vocals, kind of like he's kind of really at the apex, and it going right into the chorus, and right when the guitar kicks in after that, it's just it's so great, it's so well done, and it just makes me go, holy crap, what a freaking great song! One of the best opening tracks of, of all time, in my opinion. It's just it's just so good. Um, I agree with you. Shoot the thrill is is a and and probably shake a leg are two great deeper cuts on this record really fun really fast paced um great full sounding guitar i mean angus and malcolm young i mean he at malcolm's doing the writing as well he doesn't get as much props because he's not the the poster boy of the band but he's mm-hmm. you know the, the the rhythm guitar that he's playing there just the, the double guitar it's very full it's very fun um and then you know like you shook me all night long that song was like I remember that always being played at like basketball games, like the high school basketball games that I would go to as a kid. And uh, that was always like that. They would always have like the cheerleaders dance into that. That was like the big, the big song. And, um, uh, and it's just got a great, I like the way that it opens that little guitar, that little blues guitar riff. And then it kicks into the, to the actual song. Just so good. Brian Johnson's voice is like unearthly. Like, how do you get, how do you make your voice sound like that for that long? I can't imagine. It's, it's like an Axl Rose type of voice, you know, or just like Bruce Dickinson. Yeah, it's it's like and to get your voice that raspy and to sing that as much as he does probably in all the live shows that he does, I, it's unreal that he hasn't like lost his vo- voice, you know, like permanently. <laughs> um, so, I mean, this lays the foundation for for bands like Guns N' Roses, which are one of my favorites of all time. It's just really great rock and roll. Yeah, it's it, it is kind of dumb in some ways, but it's like it. We need music like this, and I agree, John. I think. I don't know. We could. I. I don't really know where this is coming from nowadays. I. 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 I'm not as. I'm not as hip to the music, and of today anyway. So I don't know if I would be aware of it. But. Uh, but this is. Uh, in. In some ways, this is timeless as well because I. I can't imagine anybody that likes any type of popular music or, you know, or rock and roll just being like, eh, like this is. It's a great album. It's freaking back in black, you know. So a huge thumbs up for me. Can I uh, do a, a little thing where I give a couple deep cut lyrics here? For <laughs> so, so from um, Let Me Put My Love Into You, my favorite <laughs> lyric there is, driving all night with my machinery because I got the power any hour to show you the man in me. That's one of my favorites right there. So very subtle right there. Down, down to 90 degrees. Ah, she's blowing me crazy till my ammunition is dry. <laughs> that one wow. is, is pretty fantastic. And then, oh, no, she's no Mona Lisa. No, she's no Playboy star. But she'd send you to heaven, then explode you to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> Which might be my favorite lyrics on the entire album right uh, there. So, so yeah, there you go. I, right, I, I do... Is- it is Spinal Tap-ish, very much. I like do that. enjoy reading lyrics when I find them amusing like that. So I'm going to try to continue to build that into this season when there are lyrics that are fantastic. So, um, And the fact that I listened to this album before Bauhaus uh, also <laughs> made like... me laugh. Because, boy, they're in totally, totally different lanes. <laughs> so, sure but, are. yeah, easy recommend for me. I mean, yeah. come on. I, I, I worry about you a little bit if you can't like this yeah. album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like who are you? Uh, you? Maybe you're Robert Criscow, and I wonder a little bit about like did, did did like somebody who looks like 
Angus Young like punch him growing up? Is that how you get that take on that album, or is it just to like empty every million dollar word you own? You know, to, to well, say he's, that he he is a very refined person. That's what made me laugh. Was like, wow, that's like for a refined person such as myself. Like, what are you sipping tea with your pinky out? Is what? Like, what are you? Like, I mean, I just here. imagine him saying like. You're a troglodyte, and then they're just hitting him with the guitar, at the head. <laughs> <laughs> and then playing. So yeah, yeah. He's, you know, he's one of the original hipsters. You have to. I guess it's just like let it be what voice. it is. You know, I don't think they're tr- yeah they're not trying to reinvent the wheel. They're not doing anything yeah. like they're just they're making great rock music. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, so yeah, they ended up with. I think this is the last time we're covering ACDC period perhaps i don't know if we're going to do razor's edge or anything later on but Mm -hmm. um they do have a total of 17 studio albums including uh, a recently released album in 2020 power up so uh you could they're still around um they were inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame in 1988 i should say they have gone through a couple of uh lineup changes um but 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 Brian Johnson and uh, well Brian Johnson actually wasn't touring with them recently because they had they actually had Axl Rose tour with them in there oh, wow. several years ago because um, I, I think they're I think Johnson actually the voice kind of gave in um, <laughs> yeah finally and uh, sadly Malcolm Young died on on November eighteenth two thousand seventeen he uh, he had lung cancer and he was also suffering from dementia so uh, so mm. pretty sad there but um but Angus is still around and kicking and uh, yeah they're still doing music so. Big up would, to uh, ACDC. You mentioned Razor's Edge, which had a lot of hits, but I, I actually will strongly recommend the two albums later in that decade, um, mm. from when I, I basically from when I was a teenager in college. Uh, Ball Breaker and Stiff Upper Lip are both very good albums. I, it's a haha, but but it is a good album, I have to say. So they sing Balls um, to the Wall too. Is that isn't that an ACDC no, song? No, that's uh, no, that's um, Accept. I think is oh, the name. Oh no, of that wait, band. I'm sorry. They have big balls. That's an ACDC yes. song. It's yeah, that's balls. earlier than this. That's a ang- right. that's a um, that's a Bon Scott. Uh, bon Scott song. Yeah, big Got balls. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, all right, Josh, floor is yours, my friend. Okay, now we are going into the goth rock zone with Bauhaus, and that is German for the building house. <laughs> and uh, in the opening montage, you heard in the flat field, and now you're going to hear nerves. Matt, what are the numbers on Bauhaus? So Bauhaus's In the Flat Field comes in at number 180 in the 1980s on Best Ever Albums, number 28 in 1980, number 1,137 of all time. It is their highest rated album on Best Ever Albums, and surprisingly, it did not make Rolling Stone's list. 
Hmm. Or not surprisingly. <laughs> okay. Well, B- Bauhaus, this is their debut album. It was released no- November 3rd, 1980. And uh, Bauhaus was formed in 1978 in Northampton, England. And it's con- and they are considered one of the pioneers of the goth rock genre, although they would resist being defined by that label. Um, but there is a whole genre that I will talk about a, a little bit. Um, the band consists of Daniel Ash on guitar and sax, Peter Murphy on vocals, Kevin Haskins on drums, and his brother David J. Haskins on bass. Also no, goes by David J. as in, in his uh, musical career. Um, Daniel Ash would be considered the founder of the band and knew the other three members of of the band since childhood so it's another one of those england bands that <laughs> all knew each other and went to school together and things like that um growing up they would often play together in different bands and in 1978 daniel ash recruited uh, peter murphy who was working in a in a factory a printing factory i believe and um didn't really have much experience playing <laughs> playing music at all um and or writing music and so he recruited him um and then followed by kevin haskins and then finally they got his brother david on board um they were originally called bauhaus 1919 after the first year of the uh, german school of design which is by the same name and um, but then they ended up dropping that 1919 um, before releasing their first um single they also used the same font um, in their band as the emblem and design of the school. And the the um, the Bauhaus, not only is the name of the school, but it's kind of like a German style of, of, of design and is characterized by kind of, well, it, it started out in, in 1919 in Weimar, Germany, and is characterized by kind of simple and functional design kind of the german way of things but you can read more about that and um so after you know after six weeks of performing um in this band they went into the studio and recorded their first demo they recorded five tracks in that session and they ended up with their single uh, being uh called bella lugosi's dead um at nine minutes long and uh i mean (laughs) that kind of really sets the uh, tone for the whole band um in their it really captures the band in a nutshell, in my opinion, um, if you listen to it. It was released on October or August 1979, and the track was influenced by reggae and dub music uh, with the drums and the bass up front, which you can hear on this album as well. Um, also on that song are uh, Echo, a lot of scratchy guitars, descending chords, all of which create this atmosphere and re- would become hallmarks of their sound and kind of goth rock in general. Um, and the title and lyrics of that single deal with Bela Lugosi, who played Dracula in the 1931 film. So then again, you have kind of not only these horror elements um, in kind of the lyrics and music, but also kind of the sexuality and uh, mysteriousness that comes with with Dracula and kind of horror films and that whole kind of milieu. Um, Sucking would, blood. <laughs> yes. Yep. Um and obviously, Dracula's the uh, first gothic novel, so um, and ho- one of the first horror mo- uh, novels. You would uh, think that with these themes and and the sound 
and it being a nine and a half minute long song would create a situation where it would not cater to commerciality, but it received positive reviews and, and it received airplay on BBC radio. And, you know, after they played it, fans immediately wanted, you know, were clamoring for more. Um, at, at this time, they were on a small label called Small Wonder Records, but then they left them due to the label not being able to support them for budgetary reasons on tour. I guess they were really that small <laughs> or, or were having financial issues. I don't know. Um, they signed with a label called 4AD and they released two more singles, Dark Entries in 1980 and Terror Couple Kill Colonel in June of 1980 before releasing this album in the flat field. So even with the titles, you can kind of get, get what they're going for. Um, Leading up to the release of this album, they played four dates in North America, followed by 20 dates in England, um, all in the, the name of promoting this album release. Um, however, it received negative reviews by critics uh, on release, but stayed in the UK indie charts for almost two years. I guess this is the first mention of the UK indie charts, but they exist and <laughs> they were they were popular. Um, NME described the album as quote, nine meaningless moans and flails bereft of even the most cursory contour of interest. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. And critic Andy Gill described them as, quote, a hip Black Sabbath, which I found hilarious. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a hip Black Sabbath. <laughs> yep. Uh, now, kind of goth rock is considered a genre that came after post-punk and has a darker tone. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's almost post post punk in a way. It uses bass and minor chords, uh, dramatic arrangements, and th- thematically is inspired by Gothic literature like Dracula. Um, the band rejected that label, as I said, but it described their style as more dark glam. And Kevin Haskins said that uh, Sushi and the Banshees were really more influential to goth rock and were an influence on them. And that's a band that started in the late 70s but we will be talking about um later on in the show and as we move on and actually probably in a couple weeks um but daniel ash also said quote later on if you wear black in your first singles bella lugosi's dead you've pretty much got a stamp on you that's always been one of our <laughs> yep. strongest songs so it's sort of undeniable um i would agree with them and uh there's all they've kind of john you posted you know you provided a link to a youtube video that i i did watch that it was called bauhaus was it bauhaus before bauhaus yes kind of set the really was a good video essay on kind of describing where this band and goth rock in general came from and kind of all of the it really did a good job of describing the straight line from screaming jay hawkins and velvet underground to later things that they all kind of drew on to create this sound and uh, i rec- i do recommend that we can if you have an array we can post that in the twitter and trash so, theory is the website yeah. for reference. yeah and they do a bunch it seems like they it's a british person and they do a whole bunch of videos it looks like or have done a whole bunch so yeah that was that was um fun to fun to watch and kind of gave me some more context on the band but um, I only have a short kind of coda to the band because they're not they're not around that long. They're really only around for about four years or so. But um, I knew nothing about Bauhaus. I don't know what your guys' experience was. But Matt, what did you think of in the flat field? Yeah, I knew nothing of this, and um, I'm assuming this is one because this wasn't on the uh, 
best ever albums list of the top 100. So this must be an album I need to listen to before I die. You got it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, This was a very interesting listen because um, I went through, it was almost like a roller coaster of listening, of of kind (laughs) of takes on this, because there were times where I felt like I really liked it and was really like kind of getting down to it. And there were other times where I was like, I want to turn this off. Mm. Um, And uh, I, I, so I think overall I'm, I'm positive on this. It's a, um, I, I, my initial take when I first listened to it was uh, finding a lot of similarities with Joy Division in the sense that it's very... It's got this dark quality. It's very melancholy um, and, and heavy, you know, like the minor key stuff that you're talking about. But um, it's, it's, I would say it's certainly less poppy than Joy Division, and it's heavier. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's definitely, it's in, in that regard, it's a darker, to me, this was a darker sounding record. Um, it certainly, certainly helps to be more dark when, uh, when the lead singer's like screaming the way that he's screaming, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, they're not really doing that as much in, um, in, 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 Ian Curtis isn't really doing that as much in Joy Division. But um, so it, it's interesting. You said you mentioned Black Sabbath because that's one of the bands that I thought of when listening to this. I was, you know, for, particularly for a song like I think Stigmata Martyr, mm-hmm. the ninth, the, the the eighth track on this record is is very. Um, kind of reminiscent of some Black Sabbath stuff in terms of like the screaming and the kind of like, it's almost like the pain kind of a thing. It was, it was a disturbing listen, you know, for me, if yeah. you remember, I was kind of like <laughs> a little one disturbed. You had on the some kitchen. Of the... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I would have it on. I was like, okay, that's got, that's, I'm not ready. That's not for me right now. Um, but, um, but there's some really interesting things. Well, actually another band that kind of came to mind, it was Gang of Four, the way that they had a kind of a tinny guitar sound that a lot of the Gang of Four songs had, so um, so I thought that that was kind of interesting, um, and I think yeah, like I really I think I liked the first half better. Um, I did like in the flat field. Double Dare was a good song. I think it was probably a little too long though. It's just kind of one musical part just done over and over again, which I liked. But it's like almost five minutes long, and that probably could have been cut down to three minutes i would say um but i thought god in an alcove and dive were, were and spy in a cab I, I i thought that those were all really interesting uh songs and um kind of liked them i kind of started losing steam a little around small talk stinks that's a little another repetitive <laughs> song that really didn't yeah. do a whole lot for me saint vitus vitus dance um and then stigmata martyr not huge on those but then they close out with nerves which is my favorite song on the record and i'm glad you put that on there josh because i really you know i like that that's got a that's got a really cool heavy guitar sound and that was that was kind of more the black sabbath and then and then all of a sudden they stop and they do the same chord progression just done on a on a like a very minimalistic piano which almost sounds like a toy piano it's very interesting and so you just have this like dude and then the drums kind of like in the background um and so uh and then it builds to my favorite part of this record which is kind of it towards you know um where the where the lead singer is kind of screaming more and kind of building and there's this really cool chord progression going on in the background with with the guitar and piano and it's just a really cool melodic um you know really interesting musical part there so it, it really ends strongly for me so um I think generally I'm thumbs up here, but there are some moments, particularly those tracks, I'd say Small Talk Stinks, uh, St. Vitus Dance, and Stigmata Martyr that I was not feeling as much, um, a little bit too too much for me, but um, definitely some interesting things going on here, and um, for a band that I never heard of before... Uh, it's, 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 it's certainly an interesting listen. So, uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go thumbs up on this. 
Yeah, I um, there's a couple things that sort of I, I know you'd mentioned some things. I I saw elements of the structure that was present in things like Kraftwerk. There were some elements of the mm-hmm. the um at that and like the the industrial as well. Yeah. That I think that might be where you get the Joy Division because there's synths all over the place. There's um, I mean, Spy in the Cab, which is probably my favorite song on the album. It almost has like what I call the '80s synth right in the background, where it sounds. At times, like the lasers, kind of, I would describe it as. Like, yeah. you know, that type of stuff. And there's, there's beeping, I think, in the song Dive as well that's in the back. Like, But it's not, um, you know, I'd mentioned Krautrock. And a song like Double Dare, for example, had that, like, running drum beat. It's like five beats, then two cymbal crashes, like, throughout. It's very metronomic at times. Um, and a lot of the songs have a, a driving bass sound as well. Yeah. Yep. Um, those are, to me, the driving bass sound is a prototype of a lot of goth music. Um, then there's other things like The Cure, right, that sometimes have it and sometimes don't, which are in that, that, um, that goth lean. But, um, I think the defining sound for me, besides the synths, was what I would call a weaving guitar, if that makes sense. Like, the guitar sort of just weaves in and out of the song, so even if the rest of it is droning or monotone by design right the guitar is definitely designed to sort of bring you out of whether it's screeching or whether it's going up high or whether it sounds like more of like a metal guitar um it's just throughout it that the guitar kind of comes in and almost sets the um heartbeat for the song um whether it's like a jittery heartbeat or whether it's a steady heartbeat the guitar is that and then the rest of it is sort of the body itself uh, vocally is where I think it's most like what you would consider to be a stereo, like a goth stereotypical thing. They're, they're writing about like paganism and anti-religious stuff and, um, yeah. uh, the dark side of things and, um, like sort of a, a, a nature element, which I always think of as, you know, with paganism and, you know, a goth outlook, so to speak. Um, and sort of, uh, you know, that, um, that alchemy of guitars that don't sound totally depressing, but lyrical content that's deep despair. Um, that would be another hallmark that, of course, and I, I mentioned The Cure, but they're another one, you know, they sound poppy, but they're writing about utter despair, right? Mm. Especially in the context of love, of romanticism, right? The, that's, I mean, that's Dracula, right? And, mm-hmm. and the whole goth, what I think of as gothic literature is like a very romantic, sensual type of world, but different than like sensual, how people like, you know, having sex, you know, or dominance, right? It's more of like a connectivity type of, you know, that's, that's the whole, that's the whole archetype of Dracula, right? He's sucking your blood. It's to become one with you, right? Stuff like that. I I do feel the mm -hmm. romance in this album though. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I agree. I, I, to me, it's that, and that's why it's not like a true industrial album because there's too much like romantic elements to it. It's not. It's not cold. Um, it's not detached. Um, there's a vibrancy to it. Um, I liked it. I, I liked it as a change of pace. It fits neatly in the um, the um, post punk area for sure uh, because it's taking sort of the punk rock formula and stretching it out in different directions. Um, I think it most sounds like synth-driven 80s rock. Um, I know often you hear that these guys say they were influenced by like dub and reggae, which is really fascinating to me because I really was trying to like dig into 
find yeah. that sound, and it was harder for me to find it, I think. So uh, did yes. you guys catch that anywhere? No, but, you know, kind of we've talked about that influence of ska and reggae on the British, you know, culture and it's so interesting that they like they pick up on some like quality that and weave it into their music that yeah. i can never find well they said they were like really into like toasting which is basically the you know the jamaican singing over the two-tone stuff yeah you know like the get up get up you know the ranking roger and the english beat and you know um uh neville staples and the specials and stuff like that but like there's it doesn't feel like there's any of that in this album maybe just yeah i, st- I struggle to I struggle to find that, like, and I think we've covered that a little bit with some other albums where it's like, oh, it's got a little bit of that reggae, and I'm like, man, maybe it's just it's so far removed though that like sonically, it's hard to, it's hard to like uh, find the connection. Yep, I wonder if it's like certain way that they play play the drums or something or or play the guitar that they're picking up on or using. Yeah, or the beat. It, it's just it's the the vocals are very. Uh, there's despair. Right, and the, sometimes he's monotone. Sometimes it's he's screeching. Sometimes he's singing passionately. Um, I was familiar. I was less familiar with Bauhaus as a band. I was familiar with Peter Murphy. He actually had a pretty had a song I, I really love from the '80s. Uh, I guess you could call him a one-hit wonder if you you know if you're in a cult band and then you go out and you're in. It's called "Cut You Up." Mm-hmm. Is a song that he sang from the '80s, which is a very um, uh, it's like goth meets new romantic sort of, um, it's a song I really love. Um, and so I was familiar with him, um, from that, but I wasn't familiar with their work. I, I knew of their reputation as sort of like one of the fathers of, of goth, but yeah, it doesn't strike out as like a stereotype. It's definitely, there isn't a distinct lane of, Oh, well this is goth, right? It's, mm. it's more, it's goth adjacent, I would say, which is probably why they hate that that label, you know, because it really yeah. does niche you to say you're goth. But th- there's more to it on this album than just that. And they're, they're shifting styles. So, yeah, I would say I like this album quite a bit. Yeah, I, I really liked it, too. It It's funny because Joy, Joy Division in some ways is similar, and I think they were an influence on this band. Um, but I, I responded to this much more than Joy Division. I feel like there is an energy and an emotion here that is not present in joy division that i i really responded to and I, I feel like that romantic feel and kind of the i don't know the gothic imagery and stuff and kind of the theatric almost the theatricality of it it's so kind of over the top in some aspects it just kind of i i and it seems like more fun in some ways than than the joy division did now we're covering Joy Division next week, so we'll see. <laughs> we'll, well, see well, yeah, and this isn't like this is mopey, but it certainly isn't like you yeah. know deep despair because there's also like stuff about like nature and stuff, right? Yeah. So it's very connected to that, yeah. And and, and it you know that it reminded me of bands that I heard later in college, like AFI and stuff that took kind of mm, some of those yes. goth, goth tropes and especially in their videos and thing and look and things like that. But you know, another um, band, I, I feel like Danzig is yes, another band that I got sure. from this Misfits a lot. Too. Like Glenn Danzig. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's yeah, Glenn Danzig. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so I, I 
this album just kind of reminds me of Halloween music. Like this is another <laughs> album that you would put on at Halloween and be like the perfect, like mysterious, moody, atmospheric uh, album. It is, uh, I'd be remiss in also not remin- uh, mentioning the doors and kind of Jim Morrison's yeah. delivery again. Like we talked about that with Joy Division, but they, this was an also an influence and it was mentioned in that YouTube Well, video and that sensuality well. and romanticism yeah. for sure. Sister exactly. Ray, they mentioned in that YouTube video too, which is also another really good comparison here oh yeah velvet yeah. underground yep mm-hmm. yeah especially with the long song and kind of yep. the, the steady beat um I, I i kind of really liked the guitars almost sounded out of tune at times i i really feel like that brought something unique to the sound i would describe the drums as hollow sounding at times in this and that also contributed to kind of the spookiness of it um obviously kind of the lead singer vacillating between screaming and kind of the the Jim Morrison mm. delivery is is evocative, and um, the uh, I like when their their backing vocals um, come in at different points and make interesting um, uh, contributions, like like in a God in an alcove. Um, uh, sometimes it, it it almost wasn't too far away from the B-52s in terms of how they deliver um, with kind of the the lead singer and the backing vocals. I feel like there was kind of a, a back and forth between them that I... The I layering, noticed. you mean? Yeah, something like okay. that. Yeah, the call and response, I think. Um, and uh, they threw in a saxophone and dive, which I thought was interesting uh, throughout. And, and lyrically, I feel like the... There were some really good lyrics and some really kind of ridiculous, sim- simplistic lyrics, like uh, mm-hmm. like in Dark Entries, which I think is the second track. They had something like one of them. I was reading the lyrics as I was listening to it said, quote, we leapt into the bed, degrading even lice, which I thought mm-hmm. is just kind of like a striking, <laughs> striking. That's a, that's mood. a very, very specific. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And then other things like you mentioned spy in the cab. That's kind of there's like mm-hmm. it's about a spy in a cab. There's nothing like <laughs> no. hidden about that. Or small talk stinks, which is kind of a silly thing um, to write about. So they throw well, it's kind of like a go- the prototypical goth kid like saying yeah. like small talk stinks. Yeah. I don't like to talk. <laughs> it makes me feel uncomfortable. You know, like yeah, very but they, edgelord. They, there is some education there because in the flat field they throw in some like Greek mythology references and and theses. Well, it's like the paganism, isn't it? Like kind of yeah. It's it's all over the place, but um, so I I appreciate it on that level too. I think ultimately the guitars and kind of the the mood is what what kept me going through this. I totally hear what you said, Matt. I think the first time through the screaming was a little much for me and threw me off, but kind of once I got on the wavelength that. Um, I, I responded to it more, probably kind of in the same way you guys did with Joy Division. I'm hoping I kind of mm. get in, feel different about them when we talk about um, their control. Is it Control, the next album that we talk yep. about? Yeah. So, yeah, this closer. was a, this was oh, closer. Closer, yeah. 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 So there's a documentary called Control about Joy Division um, and our Ian Curtis. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was fun. Uh, it, I feel like it kicked off the 80s in an interesting way, mm-hmm. dynamic, different than than what we experienced in the 70s so i'm glad we i'm glad i listened to this and yeah, I, when I, I also it, went in thinking boss was going to be like more kraut rock or something because of the name and so i'm glad i was yeah. surprised about what they sounded like 
Yeah, when I think of 80s, I don't necessarily think of, of, of something like this. Although, I will say, I, I agree with you. I mean, there's parts oh, I of this. Oh, I do. That, I think of the, do the, you? this is see, a lot I, of the 80s, yeah. I, 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 I do see parts of like um, of, of something like the B-52s or Talking Heads or Devo in this as well. There's a lot of – it is drawing from a lot of different places, um, mm-hmm. it, which I kind of found interesting. I even found like – what is Spy in the Cab? You guys were talking about that. That's, there's a little psychedelia going in there. It's mm-hmm, kind mm-hmm. of like the way that that guitar is playing that over and over again. The tone, it's like a very kind of puts you in a little bit of a trance or something in the way that a psychedelic song might mm-hmm. might do. So, uh, so yeah, a lot of dribs and drabs of things that kind of make it its own its own thing. Um, and uh, very interesting listen. Yeah, for sure. They also go back to how like the Velvet Underground and the Doors are yeah. really influential on a lot of these bands because. Yep. The Velvet Underground sound is here underneath. It's like the layer. It's like the foundation of the house with them building off of it, which I feel is the answer to so many of where these bands come from. And yeah, in this case, you mentioned the screaming and stuff and the romanticism, that sensuality. It's everybody kind of comes at it differently, right? But to some degree, there's so many people trying to do the like Jim Morrison thing when he had a song he was really passionate about, like that dark sensuality and you know, Jim Morrison always sort of did it as like like these groans like like visceral like animalistic gro- they're almost like onomatopoeias you know like, you know like and almost no one can kind of do it like him it's what makes him Jim Morrison but you see people doing their own version of it and I mm-hmm. felt like that was a little bit of the screaming here like Peter Murphy was doing like you know what's my version of like the Jim Morrison like sort of you know yep. the, passion taking over you type of sound you know which Mm kind of comes from old school rock and roll of you know the the you know the 50s you know acts kind of just you know little richard uh jerry lee lewis type stuff you know the the continuation of that but yeah i uh so i saw yeah the doors is another very good comparison here especially the more psychedelic slash droning like door songs there's a lot of that in this as well yeah i would say too they I think the other thing is the glam aspect to it, especially Mm -hmm. kind of the performance piece of it, which obviously we can't hear, but I feel like comes through in some way in terms of that emotion and the the sexuality again and things like that. So yeah, glam was definitely an influence. Well, even though glam was bright colors and goth is black, right? There's also the makeup and the like larger than life feelings and, you know, stuff like that. So yeah, there, there is a, there's a Venn diagram. of both of those musics for sure yeah but having not much experience or little experience with the goth rock genre i'm glad we got to listen to this it was interesting and fun Agreed. Yeah, I'll give. And John, you can go see them in a couple weeks, can't you? Aren't they touring? (laughs) They are touring near me. Yes, so they're playing at the nine thirty club in DC. So. Um, maybe I'll run into some CTS fans there. So if you are a, a CTS fan and you're at the Bauhaus show, um, drop us, drop me a line here if you're going to 930 Club, and maybe it will inspire me to to go over and check that one out. I think it's I would, on like a Wednesday night. So oh, I would love to see what the uh, crowd makeup is like. If it's like a bunch of goth yeah. people and goth teens and goth adults and like mm, I think it's gonna be goth. older. <laughs> like, yeah, I, <laughs> I am trying to figure. Yeah, maybe like old goths. Yeah, old goth, yeah, like. Visigoths. <laughs> so, but yeah, I, but yeah, getting back to the, I, I did like this, and and you know, it's the third of three albums I like this week, and three very different albums. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, for sure. 
Well, speaking of three different albums, I think it's time to kind of wrap this up. But Josh, do you want to go ahead and billboard the albums we're going to be covering next week in another full episode? Yes. So for episode two, I will be covering Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables by the Dead Kennedys. We are uh, returning to Joy Division. Matt's covering Closer. And you are covering, John, Judas Priest, British Steel. I know a band Mm -hmm. that you have a place in your heart for and... I've listened to some, so that will Mm -hmm. be another really great show. I'm pretty sure I bought you this album, Josh, for your birthday one year, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, you might be right. I -hmm. think I seem to remember having that. Um, Yeah, definitely a band you exposed me to along with Iron Maiden, so I appreciate that. It'll be fun to talk about, I think. Yep. Breaking the law. Breaking the law. Any right, is that on there? I hope that's on there. I love that. On song. on British Steel, yes, breaking the law. Sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, any closing thoughts before I tie it up, guys? Nope. Besides, we... welcome to the eighties. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I said I said it all. You said it all. Well, welcome to the eighties, and uh, check us out on any of the thirteen platforms we are on now. Twitter at Combing the. You could search us on YouTube, Combing the Stacks Music Podcast. Uh, we'd love to hear from you if you want to email us, combingthestacks at gmail.com. For Josh and Matt, this is John. We'll see you next week, week two of our journey through the 80s. Take care of yourself. Combing the Stacks can be found on 13 different platforms. Viewer feedback can be sent to combingthestacks at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Combing The and on YouTube by searching for Combing the Stacks and throwing us a follow.